In this episode, Australia's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. So this second National Action Plan draws on growing evidence that upholding human rights and advancing gender equality can break cycles of conflict and support peace. The future workforce of Australia's intelligence sector. This is unique work that you can't really do anywhere else. And Pacific responses to COVID-19. Even without the experience of COVID in the Pacific Islands, all of the states shut their borders, they closed down uh, their ports, airports, etc. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Earlier this week, Australia announced its second National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Amelia Curry is joined by Lisa Sharland to discuss the plan's strategic outcomes, how it differs from the first plan, and the challenges for successfully implementing this ambitious strategy. Hello everyone, today we are joined by Lisa Sharland. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thanks, Amelia. Lisa is here to talk to us today about Australia's second national security plan on women, peace and security that was announced by the government this week. To start off with, do you mind telling us a bit about what this plan is and what it means for Australia? So as you mentioned there, Amelia, this is the second national action plan that Australia's had on women, peace and security. Uh, And earlier this week, there was a joint press release put out by the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister for Defence and Minister for Home Affairs announcing its release. This has been under development uh, for a couple of years now uh, and is intended to follow on from Australia's first national action plan, which was in place from 2012 to 2018. What the plan is intended to do is identify how Australia will take forward its national commitments as they relate to women, peace and security. What we're talking about here is things that relate to women's participation in political processes, uh, the value and importance of conflict prevention and their engagement in those processes, how women are protected in conflict-affected settings or where they may feel threats to their security. And this is guided by uh, the adoption of 10 Security Council resolutions over the last 20 years, starting with UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And that was pivotal back in the year 2000 because it recognised women's roles in, in a number of these processes and that was fundamental to the maintenance of international peace and security. So this second National Action Plan draws on growing evidence that upholding human rights and advancing gender equality can break cycles of conflict and support peace. And it's identified four strategic outcomes that will guide Australia's implementation moving forward into the next decade, so through to 2031. And they are namely supporting women's meaningful participation and needs in peace processes, reducing sexual and gender-based violence, supporting resilience, crisis, security, law and justice efforts to meet the needs and rights of all women and girls, and demonstrating leadership and accountability, I should say, for women, peace and security. And it's identified that there will be five implementing departments across government. So DFAT, Defence, the Australian Federal Police, Home Affairs and the Australian Civil Military Centre. It sounds a lot like this WPS agenda is designed for conflict-affected areas. Is this just for Australia's overseas engagement or will it have an impact on Australian women as well? Look, that's a really important question. And this has been a debate that's been going on uh, between civil society and its conversations with government around the development of the Second National Action Plan. So while I think there may be some analysis as it relates to women's participation in some of the implementing departments, 
the plan itself is nonetheless very much focused on the overseas context and what Australia is doing, as you mentioned there, in fragile and conflict-affected states. And I think this is a real challenge for government in the sense that we know that many domestic security concerns that have been raised in conversations with civil society around domestic violence or the experiences of Indigenous women, for instance, often fall to other government departments that are not part of this national action plan that may be at the state or local government level, for instance. But I think one of the things that we're really going to see in the next decade ahead is that the security challenges that we see globally are not going to have clear borders between what is what we might say outward focused and what actually happens within our borders. And I think if we go back to the last 18 months and look at what's happened with climate change around different floods and fires, or if we look at what's happened with the pandemic, for instance, we see this shifting security landscape. And I think we're only going to see that continue when it comes to issues of online safety and cybersecurity, foreign interference, attacks on critical infrastructure. So I think this concept of conflict is evolving as are women's perceptions of security. And I think when you add into that mix, what we've been seeing play out over the last few months with the political climate in Canberra around the barriers to women's participation in politics, sexual harassment and so on, it's a very complex landscape of issues to be looking at. So I think the short answer here, even though I've taken a little while, is to say that these debates are not going to go away. While this plan is not focusing on addressing them domestically, as you've mentioned there, I think they're going to be an important part of the conversation going forward, particularly as governments look at developing their implementation plans. That's all really good points. I was just wondering, have there been any significant changes from the last WPS plan that Australia had to this current one? Does it reflect these changes in what conflict is going to look like in the next 10 years? I think the short answer is yes, there have been some significant changes. I mean, first and foremost, this NAP is really looking at how you affect change. So the decade ahead, as we've just discussed, there is going to look quite complex when it comes to security. What this NAP has done is identified four strategic outcomes. So as opposed to sort of what a number of the early or first iteration of national action plans tended to do was look at these different pillars around participation, conflict prevention, uh, and so on. This one is actually focused on how it can affect change, and I think that's really, really important. The second is that we've seen a shift in responsibility from the Office for Women in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet across to the Department of Foreign Affairs as the coordinating department. And I think, again, this draws a real emphasis to the international focus of this National Action Plan. The third point I'd probably make is going to be the role of home affairs. So home affairs didn't exist when the first plan came in. And I think looking at how they develop their implementation plan is going to be really key moving forward when you consider that they have different responsibilities around issues related to border protection, immigration, counterterrorism, critical infrastructure protection and cybersecurity. And I think the final point I'd make there is in relation to implementation. So this plan has taken an approach that's sort of focused on a devolved responsibility among different government departments. Unlike the first plan, which set out clear different sort of indicators that different government departments were responsible for, this one has left it to government departments to come up with their own plans. And now this has some benefits because I think it allows a real degree of flexibility when it comes to what we might face in the next decade ahead. But I think it's also important to note that there is a risk that it might diminish accountability a little bit. And I think it will be important that that continues to be monitored. Would you see that as one of the main challenges that Australia is going to face going forward in implementing this plan? Are there any other challenges that come to mind? I think a big one is always funding. So one of the things that gets pointed out is for countries that develop national action plans, they're great international political commitments to say, here we are, we support women, peace and security. 
But on the other hand, if like any government policy, if that doesn't have adequate funding to support uh, a plan that's taken forward, that's a real challenge. So this one has said has been a little bit unclear on where that funding is going to come from. I suspect it will come out of the existing work that departments are doing. But another aspect where funding is important is around supporting the engagement of civil society in those consultation processes that move forward. And I think, again, this is going to be an important challenge that needs to be addressed as part of the plan. But I think the broader point I'd make is uh, around the issue of accountability. This is not an issue that is just the responsibility of the Minister for Women or the Ambassador for Gender Equality or gender advisors that we deploy overseas. This is a shared responsibility and there is a tendency to say, well, they're the folks that work on women, peace and security. They can figure out how to take forward the plan. Actually, this is about broadening that conversation to make sure that anyone who is working on national security or foreign affairs issues is considering the issues that are in this plan and a part of the discussions moving forward. And I think that's going to be even more important as we look at the shifting strategic environment that we see uh, moving forward in the next decade. Have you ever considered a career in intelligence? Perhaps you should. Michael Shoebridge speaks with Carl and Corinda from the Office of National Intelligence. They discuss some of the exciting career pathways in intelligence and what the future of the intelligence workforce might look like. Well, welcome to another ASPE podcast. I'm Michael Shoebridge, ASPE's Director of Defence Strategy and National Security. And today I'm delighted to be talking with two people out of Australia's Office of National Intelligence, our core national intelligence agency, Corinda and Carl. And we're going to talk about the kind of work that's available inside Australia's national intelligence community and why people might want to work there what their sense of purpose is, and how the agencies are tangling with the rapid technological change that we see in our world. A lot of uh, people hear about the defence budget and defence systems and military capability, but they don't realise that Australia's government depends on the insights and capabilities of our intelligence agencies and that there are extremely interesting, varied careers there. So, uh, Corinda, if I could turn to you first... Why should anyone want to work in the Australian intelligence community? Why shouldn't they be thinking, my future is with Google or Atlassian or BHP? Look, for me, I think it's the fact that this is unique work that you can't really do anywhere else. There's also a huge variety of work that's on offer and there's a variety of careers and different roles that you can undertake. In many intelligence jobs, I think no two jet two days are actually the same um, and you're often responding to rapid events or events that are unfolding which means that you know you might walk into the office in the morning and think that your day is going to go according to one plan and it actually goes according to a completely different different plan it's not always like the movies we're not always you know speeding down an Ital in italian mountain or um the swiss alps in an aston martin unfortunately as i drive my honda city every morning i, I feel a disappointment about that <laughs> indeed you know a lot of the work that we do is like a lot of other government government roles a lot of the work that we do relies on collaboration relies on working in a team but i really think the difference is that there is a huge amount of variety of work that's on offer people don't really understand the range of agencies and what they do no ab look absolutely and i think um now with the national intelligence community there are actually 10 agencies that you can work in so when you join one agency it really does open up careers in a whole lot of different other agencies for example 
You could work in an agency that's focused on financial or criminal intelligence, such as the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, ACIC, Austrac, or the Federal Police. Then you could also work on foreign intelligence for an agency such as ACES or the Australian Signals Directorate, which focuses on intelligence derived from electronic communications and also um, is responsible for cybersecurity. Or you could work for the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation, AGO, which collects and analyses satellite and other imagery. There are also those agencies that are focused on threats closer to home, such as ASIO, or threats to the border, such as the Home Affairs Intelligence Division. Then there are agencies that focus on assessments, so look at different sources of intelligence and make assessments from those, such as the Defence Intelligence Organisation, DIO, or our agency, the Office of National Intelligence. Cool. And our agency also has quite a unique role in that it actually plays a coordinating role across the 10 agencies. And, for example, my job, which is around building workforce capability, so working with all of the agencies on how we can build a better and stronger workforce collectively. Mm. That's great because I think uh, from the outside, a lot of people think about intelligence agencies as espionage or maybe they think about them as electronic uh, communication collection, but the real diversity of roles uh, is quite attractive for subject matter passions or technology or that collaboration side of things. Look, and I think the other thing to remember too is we also need people who are who are what I would probably call enablers. So we need people in HR, we need people in IT, we need all of those types of people across the community. It's not just about specialist people working on um, intelligence issues, it's actually the whole range of roles that we actually have on offer. Uh, Carl, if I can uh, turn to you, there's enormous technological change underway, disrupting all kinds of fields of human endeavour. You know, we even see it in a positive way with the very rapid vaccine development underway now. How's technological change affecting the work of Australian intelligence agencies already? And um, is this something that people thinking about a career in intelligence should be excited about or anxious about? Yeah, look, great question. Look, technological change for us is both challenge and, and opportunity in intelligence works. And what we really need to focus on is placing the intelligence community in the best position to respond and really invest in the innovation it needs uh, so that this will be critical to our future success. Fundamentally, in my view, the purpose of intelligence is the same, right? We're trying to convey an understanding of the strategic environment and finding a way to advance Australia's interests and protect Australians from threats. But how we will do that will, will change. We know that the rapid rise in things like automation, artificial intelligence will significantly impact the how of, of intelligence and the skills and capabilities we have across our workforce. So what we need to do is actually think about the implications of that for our workforce and to ensure that we're, we're well positioned for this. AI can now complete a broad range of tasks much faster than humans can. Uh, for example, with translation of speech or deep analysis of larger data sets that we talked about. So in increasingly, while technology will help us do our jobs better, we still need humans because at its core, intelligence is about making sense of the world, bringing together complex information to resolve really hard problems by gleaning insights that will help decision makers and people will always be needed to do this. So I don't think we need to be anxious I think people need to be excited. The intelligence community has always looked at 
uh, being smart adopters of technology. What's really different now is that some of the technology is not necessarily within the intelligence community. It's out there more broadly. Mm. One thing that really interests me about the intelligence community is people talk a lot about information and data, but your point about making sense of things is also about the fact that intelligence work is about uncertainty and judgment. So it's not just factual information and data, it's, it's that judgment element. I think that's part of the power of, of the agencies and one of the real attractions for working on them. Um, thinking about a deeper reason, what, what sense of purpose do people working in the world of intelligence have? You know, what, what makes you get out of bed in the morning? We, we know that people come to their jobs with a whole range of different motivations and, and reasons, but I think for people working in, in the intelligence community, that sense of greater purpose contributing to Australia's future security and prosperity is a really important motivator. Also, as we talked about, the unique nature of the work uh, is, is, is also really important. For, for myself and I think for a, a lot of people, also what really drives them is the challenge and the variety of work on offer. You know, we are looking daily at complex problems, trying to find unique solutions. And as we've also talked about, trying to find a way to convey that advantage for Australia. You know, in, in my own week, I always find that I'm doing things that I've never done before, like this podcast. And, you know, I think that's really important for why people want to get out of bed. That sense of mission is also really key. Uh, a lot of people may have heard the story about sort of President Kennedy going to NASA and asking the janitor what he was doing and his response was, well, I'm helping put a man on the moon. So in the intelligence community, I think there's also a genuine sense that no matter what your skills and background, you're really contributing to a greater sense of purpose. You know, you could be the expert on a geostrategic issue of national importance. You could be helping stop terrorism, or you could bring bring together the best minds on a real key intelligence challenge. So we aren't all necessarily trying to put a person on the moon. And like any job, there are days that can be a little less exciting than, than others. But on the whole, I think that we have this really strong sense of purpose, and that's what gets us out of bed. I suppose an important um, way of thinking about it is, can people working in the intelligence community see the impact of their work in government decisions, important decisions that the Australian government makes uh, from day to day? And, and I think the answer is you can see a connection between the work that you are doing, the advice that is being presented to government and the actions that you are taking to support the national interest. You can't really see that in a role anywhere else uh, in Australia. And clearly your intelligence is only one input to decision making, but done well, it can really be quite insightful. Now, if we can think about this future world of rapid technological change and also the world that the Prime Minister spoke about when he launched the Defence Update, he talked about Australia living in a poorer, more dangerous and more divided world and still seeking well-being, prosperity and security. What kind of skills and attributes does the future intelligence workforce need to have, Greta? Well, look, I think the first thing to note is really that we're looking for a range of skills um, because we've got a range of jobs and different roles across the community, as, as Carl mentioned earlier. I think looking to the future, we're really looking for those types of skills um, that are going to be a blend of really the so-called hard and soft skills. So we need people who can make sense of data 
who have the ability to also um, make sense of information um, and know how to read information because I think that's what's going to give agencies their advantage over their adversaries. This includes skills like data science, um, data analytics, AI development, but we also need people who understand technology and how it can be used both offensively and also defensively. As Carl mentioned earlier too, we need people who can understand how to solve complex problems. So we need critical thinkers. We need people who can look at a problem, think creatively about a solution that don't just always go to the first solution that's on offer, that actually tease out what, what's there and what actually might come afterwards. We need people who also know how to engage with other people, who can collaborate, who can also be part of a team because a lot of what we do actually relies on being part of a team. We're also looking really for people who are what I probably call doers and finishers, people who kind of get the job done, who kind of see something through from the beginning to end. I think I suppose that, that having that sense of purpose is a quality that matters there. You, you want to see results from your work and, and you want to get that job done. Absolutely. And I think that's really what helps continue to drive people in their roles, that they can see that. And as, as Carl said earlier too, that they can see that link between what they're doing and government decisions and where the government is headed. I think the other thing to really note is that we're not just looking for graduates. We're not just looking for people who are straight out of university. We're actually looking, as I mentioned earlier, for people from a really broad set of backgrounds. I myself was in the policy agency for nearly 20 years before I actually joined the community. So it's not just people straight out of uni that we're looking for. It is about diversity of experience and also diversity of background. So we want people who are actually reflective of Australia and the Australia that we're going to be and that we are. So it's people who are um, Indigenous, who are from the LGBTQI community and also from non-English speaking backgrounds as well. So Corinna, what you're talking about is diversity, not just in backgrounds, but also stages in careers and, and places people have had careers. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, I think this really goes to Carl's point earlier in that we're looking for people who understand innovation, who might have worked in industry, who can bring that kind of experience into the workforce. So it's not just around about people who are in government, but people who are outside of government. You know, as you mentioned, we are looking for, for graduates, but we're looking for people who've really got a broad experience um, and can bring all of those different skill sets to the work that they do in the community. Because ultimately, the variety of work that's on offer means that you can bring together all of those different skills and experience. Mm. So that diversity ambition needs to combine with the clearance process. Uh, do you, do you think there's a recognition that diversity challenge needs to work with the clearance process? Look, we do need a workforce that is reflective of Australia. It needs to be diverse. We need people from all different backgrounds. And I think that the clearance process will need to recognise that. I think that's really encouraging that there's that capability element to diversity in, in, in the thinker. That should encourage a whole lot of people thinking about a career. Well, look, we're pretty much out of time. So I, I want to thank both of you because the work of the intelligence community uh, is quite professional work, but to hear about the kind of impact it has on Australia's prosperity and security, I think is quite exciting. And to have the opportunity to talk with the two of you about some of the directions and opportunities in the intelligence community is great because Australia needs capable people in our intelligence agencies if we're to navigate that poorer, more dangerous and divided world that the Prime Minister has spoken so clearly about. So thank you both very much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. 
This week, ASPIA released a report on the vulnerabilities and resilience of Indo-Pacific island states in the COVID era. Brendan Nicholson is joined by report co-author Professor Richard Herr from the University of Tasmania. They reflect on the different responses to the pandemic in both Pacific and Indian Ocean states. Hello, Richard. Look, it's great to catch up and congratulations on this report. It's, uh, there's some fascinating stuff in there. I thought it was an interesting project to do, frankly. It was something that came almost as a consequence of a mid-course correction in a, in a broader study. We were looking at the problems of insularity in a free and open Indo-Pacific and uh, COVID happened. And we realized immediately that this was going to impact uh, significantly in all of the island states uh, that are involved in the study. And uh, we had to do some sort of adjustment as to uh, understanding what, uh, how they would feel about being part of a world in which they were going to be isolated for a long time. And it was, uh, it was, as I say, fascinating from the point of view of an analyst, but it was also a challenge because we weren't able to go into the field and do some ground truthing on the issues that we were investigating. Well, look, you've looked at the impact of, of COVID-19 and the vulnerability, the resilience of the island nations in the face of the COVID pandemic. You know, as a layperson looking at this, now you'd know far more about the region than I do, but I've always felt that we have a slightly shameful lack of knowledge about what goes on in our neighbourhood. We know it's out there. We know it's beautiful. We see the travel posters. We occasionally go and lie on a beach and sip a cocktail and snorkel, skin dive and fish. Um, but there's a lot of populations out there that are very diverse, they're fascinating places. Many of them are under-resourced. What did you find when you started looking at how they were handling this global pandemic, which was not of their making and sort of came out of nowhere, but affected them deeply. Yes, well, uh, I guess the point I should acknowledge my co-editor, David Brewster, because he looked at the Indian Ocean. And the Indian Ocean islands involved in our study were uh, significantly different from those of the Pacific islands. They all suffered from insularity and had a lot of those issues in common. But as you say, the Pacific islands are huge. They're the area covered by them is more than twice uh, the size of Australia, for example. And yet uh, 10 million or so people on tens of thousands of islands. And each one of those islands was itself, because of COVID, a bubble. So when you look at a country in the Pacific, you might have a capital island, which was exposed to COVID because of returning citizens or aid workers or whatever. And yet the islands part of the chain elsewhere, had to stay in a bubble because they weren't exposed. And this caused for internal issues and so forth. But from my point of view, what came through in a lot of ways was uh, similarities of an experience. The Pacific Islands uh, are often regarded as affluent subsistence. And as we saw, for example, in some of the island voices, they responded to the COVID issue in a very entrepreneurial but island way. They engaged in developing barter systems using new technology, i.e. their phones to uh, and apps to go on and advertise what they had to barter with uh, and what they needed. And uh, that provided a way of getting around the closure of the money economy for many of them because uh, work had closed down, they didn't have their incomes coming in, and they had to adjust. So some rose to the challenge. 
in other cases, there was the development of uh, a new use of technology using social media, for example, in a very positive way, rather than in some of the ways we've seen with alarmist and false information being spread, but using the social media to actually act as first responders, to respond to a request and getting the people who are asking for help in touch with people through social media who could provide that help uh, over the um, over the internet. And so it was an interesting variety of experiences, perhaps from the point of view that you started with, uh, Brendan, with your question, was to me what struck me was the difference between the sort of things that my colleague and I expected to hear, i.e. how aid uh, might be used to exert leverage and whatever. The islanders, by and large, in our study, didn't respond that way. They saw the world through their own needs, through their own experiences, and were basically inward-looking. They didn't really look at the geopolitical consequences. We didn't see much in the way of mass diplomacy or vaccine diplomacy or those sorts of things actually figuring in their thinking. What they were thinking about was, in the case of Samoa, this is like the um, measles epidemic that we just had. <laughs> and we're going to go through this all again. And learning from the experience of having had the measles uh, epidemic only a few months earlier and adjusting in terms of their shutdowns, in terms of social distancing, etc., to apply that previous experience to COVID. Right. You mentioned Samoa. And like that's a fascinating situation because and again, it's one of those things you'll know a lot more than me, so forgive a naive question perhaps, but there was a very strong anti-vaccination push there because of problems with the rollout of, of the measles vaccine work there. Did that build resistance to the possibility of vaccination or other measures for COVID? Well, the, the island voice on that in our study said perhaps it was the other way around. Anti-vaccine sentiment had been the reason why some of the young children, uh, well, they were vaccinated, but they were treated inappropriately, I guess is the fair way of saying it. A couple of nurses went to jail. But the public response was that we've learned from the experience. And again, we haven't seen a rollout, a huge rollout yet in Samoa. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But the expectation was they would have more confidence now that they'd been through that experience and they felt a bit more confident that the adjustments would be made. But you're right, there was a fear, certainly a fear, that uh, the failure with the measles vaccines would create an anti-vax response. But that seems at least the expectation from the person that wrote on this, having been part of the measles, uh, the subsequent measles vaccine pr uh, uh, process, was that it would actually help to make the rollout of the um, COVID vaccines more effective. Now, you, you mentioned um, the island nations basically as a series of bubbles. Now, the, I suppose the best example we know a lot about was probably New Zealand, and to some extent a very big bubble being Australia. Did the island nations sort of become insular to deal with this, or did they actually cooperate you talked about the barter system that evolved as a consequence, which is fascinating. And maybe there's something in, in their history that enabled enabled them to swing and adopt that sort of system under this sort of pressure quite naturally. Did they cooperate with each other or was there resistance to contact with other island nations? 
Oh, uh, there was some internal resistance, not between or amongst island nations. I think, again, the Pacific Islands had a century-old experience with smallpox, with measles, all sorts of introduced diseases during the time of uh, colonization. So they actually were aware of how risky COVID was going to be. And so they did respond immediately. That was the uh, amazing thing. Even without the experience of COVID in the Pacific Islands, all of the states shut their borders. They closed down uh, their ports, airports, etc. because of that experience in their recent historical past. And they accepted the reality of it. The consequences economically, of course, will be in the post-COVID period. And that's one of the things about the report, I think, that might be of interest to people who read it. One is it serves as contemporaneous notes. This is how it felt at the time uh, as it was unfolding. And it also serves as a kind of baseline for judging what needs and what expectations will be held in coming back and addressing COVID. The two critical lessons, I think, uh, Brendan, one is that health security is genuinely part of national security. And that has been underscored hugely. Uh, because of this, and it will continue to be so. And I think that in the post-COVID Pacific particularly, we're going to see the regional system, which is stronger in the Pacific area than it was in the Indian Ocean area, we'll see that in the Pacific Islands area, the regional response is going to be much strengthened on helping to upgrade uh, health security in very significant ways. The other thing that will come out of it is the consequence of the islands have paid a huge price for their caution, their support of the global anti-pandemic response by not becoming basis for uh, reinfecting other countries, safeguarding themselves, of course, but they, they aren't a danger to other countries. But their economies are going to be very severely threatened. And again, not because they needed to do it domestically because they didn't have it, but because in being responsible in toward the international system and, uh, uh, and their own citizens as a whole, they paid a huge economic price. Was that by, uh, by cutting down tourism and things like that? Well, tourism, but also remember, most of the island states get a large share of their national income from custom, uh, the, the state income from uh, excise, customs, and so forth. And when they shut their ports and closed down that traffic, some of it was voluntary, in other cases, it was imposed on them because other countries stopped ordering from them and so forth. So they've lost a lot in terms of their income. Yes, tourism was a factor, but tourism for the 14 states in the Pacific Islands, only a few of them are actually seen a really serious tourist destinations. So for the region as a whole, it will be more the, as I say, the economic consequences of the breakdown of trade the breakdown of uh, aid income as aid projects had to be put on hold and so forth. So there's a lot of backfilling to be done with their economies as we come, in, uh, as we come into the post-COVID era. And I think I'm, I'm hoping that this report helps to identify a little more with a island accent how those needs are felt and how they need to be addressed. Are there obvious steps that a country like Australia or perhaps New Zealand can do to help? Oh, yes, there are. And the critical one is will be making sure that we extend the bubble to our neighbours as quickly as possible. As I say, 
countries like Fiji and so forth desperately want to be part of the bubble. So do Samoa, etc., which rely less on it. But for example, in Samoa's case, they need the bubble because so many of their relatives live in New Zealand and Australia, and they can't easily go back and forth until there's a good COVID-safe bubble. So for a variety of reasons, sharing our vaccines, sharing our expertise, a country like Papua New Guinea, twice the size of New Zealand, they don't have the capacity to get the vaccine into all parts of the country so easily. So it's going to be a somewhat fractured and difficult development. We are perhaps by history and experience and continuing close contacts, best equipped to help meet them, meet uh, those challenges. Richard, thanks very much. My pleasure, Brendan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. If you'd like to know more about working in intelligence, head to careersinintelligence.gov.au. We'll be back with another episode next week.